last time on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, I met Will in an Ushi youth hostel. We talked about things with hushed voices like voting in China, accessing the internet beyond the Great Firewall, and the Carpenters. This time, I dig a little deeper into the issues deemed sensitive by the party. The next two episodes are partners, covering a saying in Chinese, Xinjie Kou Kuai, which refers to those with straight hearts and quick mouths. And what that means to me is the ones who seek justice and cannot help themselves from speaking out. One of the reasons I want to give time to these issues is that many people have fallen afoul of the Chinese government's suppression of freedom of speech, and it depends on others to voice their words as they've been gagged and locked up. In recent years, freedom of speech has become a bit of a thing in the UK and USA, as the freedom to abuse others online comes up against attempts to stop the harm caused by that abuse, or controversial academics are no platformed in universities, or individuals lose their jobs when someone digs up an old tweet that comes across racist. Without really wanting to pass comment on the rights and wrongs of this complicated issue, I do think it's worth looking at what it's like when freedom of speech is really prohibited, when power and paranoia lead to the policing of words and thoughts, and lives genuinely hang in the balance. Okay, some scene setting. What led China to become a country run by a communist party? Well, we had imperial China for 2,000 years or whatever, which in the 19th century was thoroughly humiliated by Western colonial powers and folded at the turn of the 20th century. The Republic of China tried to get things running, but there was a war with the Japanese from the outside and the communists on the inside, who were aided by the Soviet Union and opposed to the right-wing authoritarianism of the ruling Nationalist Party. Ultimately, the communists won the day, establishing the People's Republic of China in 1949. With Mao Zedong in charge, freedoms were further curtailed, and what's right became the interests of the party itself, especially Mao. From the very beginning of the communist years, bad news was simply covered up. This is one of the unfortunate habits which exacerbated the famine in the late 50s. You might remember the story of the Great Leap Forward in episode 3, Pumped and Deflated. Anyway, regular people have gradually learned not to be interested in politics, which is why, and this is a theory dreamt up by me and my teacher colleague Penny, and could be way off, or this is why the go-to topic of conversation in China is food. Occasionally, domestic scandals break out in China. Some of them become huge, with angry people making demands of a government which expects their population to be seen and not heard. In 2008, it was discovered that a large state-owned dairy company was producing poisonous milk powder, ironically to pass quality control tests. It killed six babies and hospitalised thousands. Reports into the scandal were suppressed, and state media focused on other, nicer things. But the scandal was still large enough to dent the party's reputation, leading to a public apology from the Chinese Premier, prosecutions of those found guilty, even a couple of executions. The scandal was seen as a reckoning with the amoral logic of the free market. But questions about whether the Chinese political system itself contributes to such scandals were not countenanced. In 2017, Beijing was rocked by an even darker scandal. In a chain of kindergartens called RYB Education New World, it was alleged that some teachers gave students dubious pills and injections as punishments, and even molested them. The ripples spread across the country, via the internet, snowballing with conspiracy theories to the point that the head of the military had to deny that the People's Liberation Army was somehow complicit in the crimes. A nation so normally subdued found their lightning rod, 
and the outcry exposed a deep lack of trust in institutions. Importantly, as far as the party is concerned, this type of scandal has a clear villain, and the party itself can step in to rectify, while its mouthpieces in the media can make all the right noises about a civilised and cohesive nation working together in the name of progress. The next notable scandal related to how the party dealt with the burgeoning coronavirus pandemic in late 2019. When a doctor in Wuhan, Li Wenliang, noticed that something new and dangerous was taking hold of the local area, he was arrested and condemned as a troublemaker. For many it highlighted the inadequacies of a political system which is too authoritarian to indulge in things like checks and balances, a sign that little had improved since the milk scandal. When Li died of the virus in early 2020, he was too much to stomach, and the Chinese people became swept up in a national outpouring of grief. Li was memorialised as a fallen hero, while hashtags calling for freedom of speech swept Chinese internet, until the censors caught up and the keywords were scrubbed. Around the same time, a citizen journalist called Zhang Jian went to Wuhan to report on how the authorities were responding to the crisis. She documented how families of COVID victims were being treated, and how independent journalists were being locked up, which is exactly what happened to her. She got the infamous picking quarrels and provoking trouble charge, and according to Amnesty International, is still locked up, forbidden to see her family, and on a partial hunger strike. The state of the pandemic was a reputational crisis for the Communist Party, potentially exposing the weakness of the Chinese system and becoming embarrassing on the world stage. But it was Donald Trump who came to the party's rescue. Once he started bullying China for being ground zero of this novel virus, the scorn and anger could once again be directed outwards. The party sighed in relief. The West was the enemy once more. Bing bong! It's worth noting here that, of course, COVID is still causing the uh, Chinese Communist Party incredible headaches, Um, not least because of the current lockdown in Shanghai, which you might have heard about in the episode last week, the chat with Andrea, who's even now still enduring a citywide lockdown, that's 26 million people, probably maybe 28 million people, uh, locked down in their homes with um, very little food, no kind of break from it, not really allowed out at all, uh, unable to call or get ambulances. And um, this is really causing trouble with the Shanghai News, who are generally quite proud of their town. It's a... you know, wealth is very well educated. It's kind of a window into the outside world, not just through its connections, but also in a kind of cultural in a kind of cultural sense too. So it's a real shock to the system for the Shanghai people. A lot of people are dying throughout this lockdown. However, they're not dying from COVID. They're dying from normal things, but they're not able to get to the hospitals or to the morgue sometimes. So uh, it's pretty bleak. That's certainly the biggest kind of challenge uh, to the reputation of the party at the moment. And uh, if you can detect any weakness in my voice, it's because I have COVID, but I'm in London, which means there are no rules or anything. There's this weird kind of um, situation where I know people who are perfectly healthy in Shanghai and locked down for what is it, three or four weeks so far. And then here I am in London enduring covid not particularly unwell, uh, touch wood, but uh, fully vaccinated, of course. Uh, live in a house of a bunch of people, so everyone's coming and going, and uh, no requirements at all. Not to say that that 
situation is never necessarily a good one. Um, there are people dying in our country. Anyway, we wandered off the point. Bong bing. Issues which are systemic, questions of state and constitution, are simply not to be tolerated in China. The wholesale oppression of the Muslim Uyghur people is hidden and denied when foreign news organisations report on it. I was recently talking to a young Chinese woman in London who argued that the Uyghurs in Xinjiang have a pretty good deal, a roof over their heads, stable jobs, but she did admit that they're not allowed to leave. Now that's what we call a prison. Anyway, we'll look a little more into the Xinjiang question later when we look at religion in China. And it's not just Xinjiang that's unquestionable in China. The complex territorial issues of Taiwan, Tibet, Hong Kong and the South China Sea are explained away as sinister foreign or terrorist forces making trouble. Optimistic stories are wheeled out instead, showing those emerging from poverty, encouraging the people to ask, really, why don't those troublemakers just get over themselves? It was Mao Zedong's Hundred Flowers campaign in 1956 which allowed the Chinese state to prune unwanted thorns in the national hedgerow. Amongst the hundreds of thousands of political persecutions was Chen Mengjia, a poet and historian who opposed the government's plan to simplify the Chinese characters. I predict that we will still be using these characters for a number of years, he said, and we should treat them as if they were alive. They are our cultural inheritance. It's a testament to the fervour that had inflicted the country that a romantic poet's romantic attachment to the traditions of his own language, the tools of his trade no less, was justification for internment. This is a man who joined the Shanghai resistance against the invading Japanese. That's the behaviour of a hero. But within a few weeks, Chen was being condemned in newspaper headlines and he was on his way to Hernan, where he was to be reformed by the harshness of the labour camp. Chen was, at the height of his career, the foremost expert on the so-called oracle bone scriptures, from which derives modern Chinese writing. As a youth, he was a member of the Crescent Moon Society, an optimistic poetry collective in the turbulent decade of the 1920s. He married Zhao Luorei, a successful writer in her own right who eventually completed the first Chinese translation of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. That was long after the persecutions of the Cultural Revolution had left her with schizophrenia and had driven her husband to suicide. Chen was found hanged in 1966 at the onset of the Cultural Revolution. It wasn't the first time he'd tried to check out. He had been writing a book about bronzes from the Shang and Zhou dynasties. Chinese authorities removed any mention of Chen as the author and published the important text with the provocative name Our Country's Shang and Zhou Bronzes Looted by American Imperialists. As for the traditional Chinese characters that Chen wanted to save, they live on in Hong Kong and Taiwan, while the People's Republic did indeed move on to simplified characters, a policy designed to help improve literacy rates. In the 1970s, the guardians of the Cultural Revolution became the Gang of Four, a radical leftist clique out of Shanghai, headed by Mao's wife, Zheng Qing. Mao himself was increasingly ill, and the battle for the soul of the party was taking place. The gang were on the offensive against the moderates, like Deng Xiaoping, who was banished to the countryside, and a former chairman of the party, Liu Xiaoqi, who was imprisoned and secretly left to die. 
You can revisit their stories in episode 5 if you want, which is called The Nine Lives of Dong Xiaoping. Cutting a lonely figure among the mayhem was Mao's loyal wingman for the past four decades, Premier Zhou Enlai, who in 1972 was diagnosed with cancer, which turned out to be three different cancers. It's a mark of how powerful Mao had become that permission was needed for Zhou to get meaningful treatment, and it's a mark of how warped he was that permission was not given. The chairman was inconsistent and paranoid at the best of times, and his illness only made it worse but he was convinced to allow Dong to return from exile to Beijing, where he took on a lot of Zhou's responsibilities. Zhang Qing and the gang were mortified at Dong's return. The game was still on. But the game was nearing its end for Mao as a participant, and he knew it. Over his long revolutionary career, the great helmsman had made many enemies, but the most profound rival was Chiang Kai-shek, the nationalist leader who ruled the Republic of China between 1928 and 1949, and then the diminished Republic of China, out of Taiwan. In many ways, their fight was still unfinished, but there was no more time for that. In 1975, Mao was informed of Chiang's death. He wrote a poem, Go, let go, my honoured friend, do not look back. Mao was becoming reflective in his old age. Eighteen months later, he too let go, granting himself the natural death that he had prevented so many others from having. That was not long after Premier Zhou Enlai had succumbed to his cancer. The guard was finally changing. The Chinese people were swept up in grief when Zhou Enlai died. Markets across China sold out of black clothes. Over his long career at the top of the revolutionary movement, Zhou Enlai walked the finest line, supporting Mao's policies, but doing what he could to keep them from running too wild. He only had moderate success in that, but he saved many lives over the years, brought many enemies together in the hope that talks could prevent violence. After ten years enduring the Cultural Revolution, Zhou represented the calm that many sought, and we're going to come back to Zhou Enlai, this mysterious revolutionary figure, in a later episode. At Qingming, the April festival for showing respect to the dead, thousands of people turned up at Tiananmen Square in Beijing to pay their respects to Zhou Enlai. This square is ground zero for political dissent in China. The 1989 massacre is the most famous incident associated with the place, but it's not the only one. In fact, Deng Xiaoping's political leadership is bookended by two mass protests which took place here, one which propelled him into power and one which pulled him out. He'd been around since the beginning, but as Zhou passed on and Mao faded away, Deng was just warming up. When the people showed up there to mourn Zhou Enlai in 1976, they were also there to denounce the Gang of Four, and especially Zhang Qing, Mao's wife. Her antipathy towards Zhou was evident in the way that she had conducted herself at his funeral, and her own imperial ambitions and ruthlessness left much to be desired. The pragmatic Deng referred to Jiang's preference for ideological rhetoric over action as sitting on the toilet without taking a shit. Even Mao was fed up with her. But for a while, Jiang and the gang were on the up. Despite Deng's return, they were able to keep persecuting people on ideological grounds. One of the last victims was Zhang Zhexing, a woman who joined the party with her husband in the 50s. Considering herself a true Marxist, she levelled criticism at Mao's Great Leap Forward, the disorder of the Cultural Revolution and the vindictive Jiang Qing. Having refused to retract her criticisms, she was sent to an all-male prison where she was raped and tortured. 
it's been claimed that other prisoners could reduce their sentence by torturing her. This kind of thing had Madame Mao's fingerprints all over it. Late in the Cultural Revolution, they wheeled Zhang out to publicly criticise Lin Biao, the army chief who was Mao's underling, but was by then disgraced. More on him later. But when they gave this mouthpiece to Zhang, she took the opportunity to turn the fire on Mao himself. Truly nothing could bend her sense of what was right and her determination to say it. Before they sent her out for execution, they cut out her vocal cords. One of China's most respected modern poets, Ai Qing, the father of Ai Weiwei, who himself was repeatedly persecuted in the 50s and 60s, wrote a poem about Zhang Zhexing called Hush, a voice is speaking. It goes like this. In order to gag my mouth so that I won't cry out to the world, you raise your vicious hand as if slitting a chicken, you slit my throat. One day the people will speak for me. One day the people will make images of me. One day the people will write music for me. One day the people will sing songs for me. With such disregard for life, it's no surprise that the leftists had made sure that Joe wasn't given his dues at the funeral. The chairman didn't even show up, using his illness as an excuse. This lack of respect had not gone unnoticed among the crowd who turned out at Tiananmen Square at Qingming. However, Madame Mao saw a way to turn this challenge into an opportunity. The leftists blamed Dong Xiaoping for the chaos that ensued at the demonstration, and with the right nudges, Mao was convinced to remove Deng from the positions he'd only recently been given, promoting Hua Guofeng, the Theresa May of his age, to vice chairman, ready to take over when Mao croaked. By this time, Mao was so ill that he communicated by writing, or mouthing words to the one secretary who could decode them. But it was too late. In the power struggle that took place after Mao's death, Deng had the chops to come out on top. As he lay low with his allies, the new leader, Hua Guofeng, took out the gang of four. Three of the gang were invited to Zhongnanhai, China's White House, supposedly to discuss a book on Mao's selected works, and they were arrested when they arrived. The gang's leader, Madame Mao, Jiang Qing, she was arrested at home. They all went to prison after a trial which captured the Chinese imagination. And indeed, Zhang Zhexing, the persecuted Marxist who'd refused to be silenced, was resurrected as the honourable revolutionary, in contrast to the corrupt Gang of Four. The people did speak out for her, as the poet Ai Qing had said they would. By the mid-80s, Mao's economic policies were thoroughly discredited and Deng's policies were reaping rewards. Alongside economic liberalisation, there was a desire for a loosening of the authoritarian grip too. For a couple of years after Mao's death, citizens in Beijing expressed a longing for more freedoms, turning a wall in the city into Democracy Wall, a site of big character posters and essays and poems. For a while, Deng tolerated the outspoken attitude, partly because most criticisms were levelled at his political opponents, but before long he was minded to shut it down. A new figure on the scene, Hu Yaobang, represented a glimpse of an opening door, with a rich communist pedigree, who started off as an uneducated teenage revolutionary peasant, cut his teeth on the long march and in the wars against the Japanese and the KMT, before enduring various bouts of persecution, public humiliation, in the heady Maoist days. 
but as Dung's loyal wingman, who too returned from the wilderness, and rose to the highest position in Chinese politics, accountable to no one except Dong. In his five years as the General Secretary of the CCP in the mid-80s, he attempted to increase transparency, public consultation and democracy. He believed in greater autonomy for places like Tibet, the rehabilitation of those purged during the Cultural Revolution, and he turned a blind eye to students who agitated for democratic reform. Needless to say, his approach won him some enemies, and that door towards liberty that some saw opening was firmly shut. With a thumbs up from Deng, who was by now an all-powerful Yoda-esque figure in the party, who was forced out. He died of a heart attack in April 1989, but not before gaining a legacy of the noble ideologue who went down fighting the good fight. Just as the people had turned out when Zhou Enlai had died, students quickly took to the streets, mourning Hu, demanding that his reputation be rehabilitated and he get a decent funeral. They came from all over China, amassing in and around Tiananmen Square, writing themselves into the history books as the tragic victims of what would become one of the world's most notorious modern-day massacres. Next time on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, the concluding part of this Chinese cheng yu, which means phrase, idiom, xin jie kao kuai. We've done the straight hearts, now it's time to look at the quick mouths, and specifically those who took to the streets in Beijing in 1989.